Hey, thanks for stopping by, checking out the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Canoe Copia. For more than 40 years, paddlers and other outdoor enthusiasts have converged on Madison, Wisconsin for a celebration of water and paddling known simply as Canoe Copia. The 2019 Canoe Copia event will take place in Madison from March 8th through the 10th at the Alliant Energy Center. Canoe Copia is the largest paddle sports consumer event in the world. More than 250,000 square feet of kayaks, canoes, stand-up paddle boards, outdoor equipment and clothing, all at the best prices of the season, make Canoe Copia a must-go place for gear. In addition, over 180 seminars and clinics make Canoe Copia an educational event where you can learn about the perfect gear for your style of paddling, develop skills to get you where you want to go, and discover some of the many places to paddle both near and far. If you're interested in experiencing life on the water, Canoe Copia is the best place to spend the weekend. Canoe Copia is presented by Rutabaga Paddle Sports. They're proud to support the Boundary Waters and this podcast. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experiences were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue. Come the northern lights Oh, and in the deep dark blue Come the northern lights Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Baxley. And I'm Joe Fredericks. Today, we have a packed episode for you guys. Starting off with a harrowing tale of near death in Quetico by two Boundary Waters users who capsized in below freezing temperatures and fought for their lives and told us the tale. And I think it's worth pointing out too, Matthew, as it fits in the context of the episode that they're very experienced paddlers uh, that we'll be hearing from today. And that leads into our second uh, guest or second discussion here. Uh, we kind of step away a little bit from the traditional gear aspect of, of the second part of the episode, although it's a, there's an element of it, and it's uh, we talk about wilderness safety, things you need to keep in mind as you're starting your trip, basically planning for safety from day one, not just while you're out there. Uh, we hear from Greg Gaskin in the second part of today's episode. He's an instructor in wilderness medicine and just a, a really educated individual when it comes to paddling and safety in the backcountry. So like you said, Matthew, it's a full episode. Um, I say we just jump right into it. Let's go because it's going to be a wild ride.
It was my pleasure to welcome to the WTIP Boundary Waters podcast two of my friends and uh, fellow Boundary Waters enthusiasts, Rachel and Jake. Welcome to the podcast, you guys. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. It's great to have you here. We're going to talk about a trip that you guys uh, endeavored on in Quetico Provincial Park, where you had, I would think it's safe to say, an adventure in survival. You could say that, yeah. Uh, before we get into that, um, I want to have you guys introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about who you are and your uh, history with the wilderness that we love. I was introduced to the Boundary Waters area as a baby. Um, I grew up in the cities, but my folks brought me up here. I was lucky to be brought into the Boundary Waters kind of on the western side near Ely as a child. And then when I was a teenager, I was privileged and lucky to attend Camp Minogen up the Gunflint Trail on West Bearskin Lake. So I spent about six summers there as a teen, and then I worked there in my early 20s. So I've spent a lot of time in the Boundary Waters and then a lot of time leading teenage girls on canoe trips in the Boundary Waters. I now work as a canoeing and backpacking guide out west, but it's definitely safe to say that my introduction to the wilderness came from from the lakes up here. Rachel, do you do you know how old you were on your first trip going in with your folks? I think I was 10. Okay, so yeah. you started pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I knew how to feather my paddle. <laughs> At 10? <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I thought I was hot stuff because I could feather my paddle. <laughs> I think you can claim that and own it for yeah. sure. <laughs> Um, I didn't get quite as early of a start as you. Um, I guess I grew up in northern Minnesota and did grow up canoeing my whole life, but my first Boundary Waters trip wasn't until I was 18-ish. I remember going up the summer after I graduated high school, and my father took me in to SAG for a trip, and it was an absolute disaster. Um, as many first trips are. <laughs> <laughs> and... Yeah, I don't know. I fell in love with it, though. I enjoyed it a lot. I ended up coming back in 2010 to take a outfitting job at Hungry Jack Outfitters up the trail and have kind of been bouncing around in and out of Cook County now since then, the past nine years, I guess. And usually get a couple trips in a year. I guess I ended up working on the trail for four seasons and got a lot of trips in then. And now it's just kind of whenever I'm around, I like to like to make sure I'm out on the water paddling at some point. I want to deviate here for a second, Jake, because uh, I'm remembering that you did kind of an epic uh, trip from the end of the Gunflint over to Ely and back uh, in your early days of paddling, I recall. Can you just give us like the two-minute version of that? Um, we always referred to it as the Ely Challenge. It was paddling from... Uh, the Gunflint side into Ely, um, hitchhiking into the Dairy Queen, getting a receipt from the Dairy Queen as proof you made it, hitchhiking back to your canoe, and then paddling back to the Grand Marais side. So we started at, or me and my two friends, Dana, who was working up at Voyager, and Dan, who was working at Tuscarora, um, took a Minnesota 3. We left at midnight on the day we all had off closest to the solstice. And um, 
just booked it for Ely, ended up pulling out at Moose, um, hitchhiked in, the ride was super easy, and they were so kind and loved our story that they brought us right to Dairy Queen, had lunch <laughs> with us, and then drove us right back to our canoe out, out of their way for us, and paddled back, and I remember the, the challenges they did in 24 hours, and we really wanted to push ourselves to see if we could do it in under 20 hours, and I remember we did it in 19 hours and 56 minutes, so we were, <laughs> we were very happy. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm, I appreciate you recounting that because I feel like that f- both of you in your unique ways are no strangers to the Boundary Waters. You're no stranger to paddling canoe country, um, to camping in the wilderness. Being out there is well within your, your zone of comfort and familiarity. Maybe too familiar sometimes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, think, I think we've both done done our fair share of trips out there and we both feel quite comfortable in in canoes and out in the woods yeah what you know which i I think is helpful to know because you know that's that is what led up to you both feeling pretty stoked to go this last fall um up into canada into quetico provincial park um, for an october trip and as we all know and was we've covered pretty extensively on the podcast here that uh, traveling in the wilderness uh, in the fall is has its own set of hazards and dangers. Um, so, tell us how that how that trip came about and kind of ease us into that. Well, I think this summer we both took jobs out west, so we weren't able to be around here. And all summer we were kind of talking about how we really missed being back in Cook County and paddling. Um, so. We didn't get back to this area, I guess, until early October, Um, but we knew we still had to get our trip in. So we've done fall trips in the past, so we weren't really thinking thinking anything of it. But we set our sights on a two-week Quetico trip, leaving like October 16th, I think it was. And uh, that's just when we had time, and that's when we were looking forward to going. Rachel, tell us a little bit about your preparation for the trip. We spent a lot of time thinking about the cold and packing a lot of layers and a lot of waterproof things and a lot of ways that in the worst case scenario we could stay warm. Um, We debated which canoe to bring. We ended up going with a Kevlar and we bought a bunch of food, a bunch of bacon, a lot of grease, Mm. um, all those (laughs) fats to keep us warm for two weeks. Indeed. And it wasn't just the two of you uh, that you're planning for on this trip. You had a third passenger in the boat. Best passenger ever. <laughs> um, my dog, Lathan. He's a 10-year-old Alaskan Husky. He hates canoeing. Well, I shouldn't say that. He hates water, so which makes him actually a very good canoe dog because he's so scared <laughs> of the water. He just lays down in the middle of the boat and doesn't move, and it's just like a statue the whole time. And then he loves porridges because he gets to go 100 miles an hour back and forth and mm. smelling everything. Sounds like the perfect paddle dog. He's, he's great. He's a good boy. So you're, it's the two of you, you got Lathan, and you're doing prep and planning, and uh, you cross the Canadian border and head where? <laughs> we head north and then west towards the Atacokan area, and it was pretty funny. I remember that day, pretty much right as you cross the border, all of the color was already gone from the trees, and then about... A hundred kilometers further, there's snow and ice on the ground. 
and all the ponds we were passing were iced over. It was it was a little bit ominous. Yeah, we leave Grand Marais and it's like a beautiful fall day and we get to, uh, what, Nim Lake was our put in and like all the ponds are frozen solid. It's like oh. full-blown winter up there. They had like two, three inches of snow. It was it was kind of comical. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but I mean, that's, uh, I think, indicative of the some of the differences between being further south and when you head north. Yeah, yeah. we were both kind of like, ooh, well, <laughs> here we go. And we were looking at the forecast plenty. Like we knew that up there it was we were yeah, going to we see were... some nights in the 20s and days with highs in the upper 30s to mid 40s. And we were prepared for that, but we were just kind of surprised to see that portages were definitely going to be very snowy and uh, littler things were going to be probably breaking ice through and stuff. Yeah, which I'm sure added to the uh you had mentioned Rachel the challenge of picking a canoe and uh, how that that can be tough on a Kevlar canoe. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that was part of your decision-making process. So uh, take us from the entry point uh, and, and where you went from there. So we parked at a little put-in and entry point to Nim Lake. I guess it's a put-in, the entry point's actually on the portage into Batchelong, which is the next lake over. And we got our we had we were super organized we had nothing but our gear in the car so we walked down and took a look at it and we had a little bit of a conversation just making sure we were both ready and prepared and we we said all right let's do it and we got the canoe we hauled our things down through the ice to the lake um we loaded us all into the canoe and we kind of sat there for a second and talked about the risks just in the lake ahead because there was it was a little breezy out and it was obviously cold it was probably about 28 degrees air temps and probably just a little bit above that in the water temperature and so we just kind of chatted about that for a little bit um before setting out we decided to island hop across the lake to the portage into Batchelong because it's a if you know if for folks who have been up to Nim Lake, it's pretty large with a bunch of islands. So we knew if we were to stick close to the islands, we'd always be close to land at some point and we could just make it safely across to yeah, the portage. For comparisons, it's very, very relative to like Sag Lake up here, where it's like a big kind of round lake with tons of islands everywhere for, for comparisons. Yeah. And in this case, with uh, cold, cold temps, windy day, the decision to kind of go island to island seeking shelter and respite between sort of epic crossings. That's what I'm imagining mm-hmm. for yeah. you guys. Yeah, and I guess after like we did, we started paddling and we we got out of the little bay that we that we set out in and then when we were out there you could kind of see that the waves had grown a little bit. Mm. Um so we had another little chat there I think about on um, what we wanted and strategies and stuff like that and we decided that there was nothing that we had in Powell before, so we should keep pushing. And we started going to that first island. And, and are you going into the wind here at yeah, this point? Yeah. So straight in? Oh, yeah, like at least quartering in, but probably more head on than anything else. Kind of ferrying across with the wind. And uh, But yeah, I just headed to that first island. And right before we got to the island, we were kind of in the one of the bigger like bowls, open open spots of the lake. Yeah, we started taking some waves in over the bow, so that kind of got us a little 
a little freaked out. Yeah. But uh, we were really close to the island, and we kept just kind of buckled down and pushed on and got to this cute little island. And we ended up hiding behind the island, kind of, and then just dumped out the water mm-hmm. and kind of reassessed there, I guess, to kind of see what, what the next step should be. So, I'm, uh, you know, I'm putting this picture in my head here. It's 28 degrees air temp. You're bundled up to the nines. I'm sure you got some neoprene and whatnot. Um, and you're going into the wind. You're taking it one island at a time, you know, just fixing your attention on whatever's next for a goal. And you're taking on water, which is unnerving in those in any situation. Um, and you, you're get, so you're getting the water out and assessing what's next. Totally. Yeah, it was... Definitely a very focused, and for me, it was also a very joyful paddle because we were back. We were back in it. It felt great. Um, I think being, we've talked a lot about this after the fact, but I was in the stern and Jake was in the bow. And from my perspective in the stern, everything was just totally hunky-dory. I was like, oh, I've done this so many times. I was like, there's a little bit of water coming in, but it's totally fine. I was like, I was having a blast. Um and Jake was kind of the one who... I was freaking out a little bit. Who was like, let's go back. Let's head behind this island. Like, I need to I need to talk about this. This is freaking me out a little bit. Well, you're front and center there. I mean, you're the one experiencing the full effects of the of the conditions, right? I mean, what was that like being in, in that position? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not... I'm way more familiar as a stern paddler also. I'm not a very experienced bow paddler. But we kind of thought that when we were going into the wind, we wanted a little more weight up front just so it was easier to kind of handle going into the wind. So that's why I went up there and, um, yeah, a little, it was a little uneasier up there, a little, a little wavier. What were you experiencing? Um, I mean, wind right into the face. Um, I was, I was a little nervous. Um, but I don't know, once, once a couple of waves come over and you start getting a little water by the feet, we figured it was a good time to kind of turn around and take some shelter. And that's at the island. Yeah. Yep. So at this point, we grouped up behind the island and we just kind of looked at each other and had a pretty lengthy and to the point chat about what we were doing. Um, and we, you know, I expressed feeling totally comfortable and competent going ahead. Um, and Jake kind of expressed the opposite. And said that. Yeah, I guess uh, neither one of us are really ones to back down from a trip, but especially I mean, this is this is day one of a ten day critical trip that you've <laughs> yeah. been, you know, craving. Oh yeah, and it's not like we hadn't done it before. The year before, I did a sixteen day critical trip starting in the same spot, same time of year. Um, so it's very familiar still, but I don't know. It just didn't seem well. I kind of um, was pushing for us to turn back to the car at that point and maybe camp in the parking lot, set out early the next morning before the wind picked up for the day. Just trying to think about what's going to be the safest for the set to, to, to make it all 10 days, right? <laughs> totally, yeah. And that's that's a big body of water. And I don't know, a lot can go wrong um, when you're by yourself in, in a unpopulated lake in that time of year. So it sounds like you you made a decision. Yep. Yeah, we decided that if one of us wasn't comfortable, that that just calls it. So we decided right. to turn around and we were both kind of 
we were totally fine with that decision. And, and we switched bow and stern paddlers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we thought um, we thought maybe it was the wrong decision to have Jake in the bow, so we switched, and I went into the bow, and we um, decided to head right back to our car. Um, so at this point, we were about maybe a mile, probably a mile downwind of our car, and probably about a half mile from shore. Um, yeah. So super close. You can pretty much see the dock where we put our canoe in. Mm-hmm. And we're heading back. <laughs> and we have <laughs> called it quits. And we kind of, I think we snapped a photo and joked about yeah. how this was the shortest, shortest two-week canoe trip ever. <laughs> um, and we But you were kind of quitting. You were postponing. Yeah, we were yeah. going to head either back in on Nim Lake or we talked to about driving back and just heading in on the Gunflint somewhere for yeah. a shorter trip. Yeah. Cause we were going to reevaluate in the morning, I guess, either way, and then kind of make our make our determination then. Yeah. Yeah. So we were feeling really good about our decision and just ready to kind of paddle back the short distance to our car. Yeah. And yeah, and I guess at that point we had we had started heading back and we were both like kind of we were in super good spirits. We were happy that we had made that decision. Um, the paddling seemed super easy. I think we were like even joking around, like having fun with it and. The wind's at your back now, yeah. more or less. Yeah, so it didn't seem... Yeah, exactly. We were cruising. We were making great time. Um, Everything felt totally stable. We're cruising. There's some, like, low, low white caps, like barely white caps, I would say, on the water, in my memory. Yeah. I mean, they were a little <laughs> bigger than mine, but... <laughs> um, and honestly, I just remember we're about maybe 20 strokes out from the island and yeah we had just started um something happens we don't even remember what um in my mind it was the dog had moved but it turns out that it must have just been a big wave um the the rogue wave the rogue wave (laughs) um and suddenly we were tipping into the water with just no yeah we talked about it a bunch and neither of us knows what happened it was just like a very like slow tip to the right and the next thing you know we were just we were just down and i guess it wasn't that slow because neither of us had time to brace or anything but yeah yeah just smoothly to the right and 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 next thing you know we were in the water and that must have been a shock to the senses that was a little chilly yeah yeah it was yeah it was a strange feeling um and very just everything happened so fast after that point um what happened after that well we kind of as we were falling we both locked eyes with just this kind of wtf look on our faces like how how is this happening and then we were in the water and i was immediately grabbing lathan to hold him up above the water um because he still had his he had like a doggy food carrier on him so i Mm -hmm. knew that he was just gonna sink and i remember just grabbing lathan and my immediate reaction was like okay breathe grab my stuff we were talking to each other Mm -hmm. um we were assuring each other that it was going to be okay and we just had to breathe for a second and then within about 10 seconds it was like all right you know starting to gather in our surroundings i was looking towards shore you know we're closer to the island but no good going there without any gear, anything to stay warm. Yeah, so at this point, island. it was already flurrying a little bit out. A little bit of a blizzard was starting. So I remember looking towards shore and just 
kind of letting go of the dog, letting go of anything and just swimming to shore. Um, yeah, and you started you started kicking and swimming. You're a pretty good swimmer. Um, we were both wearing life jackets, which was very key to everything. Yes, as it is. Yeah, it's good. And um, so Rachel takes off. I'm a, I'm a little. I was in the stern, so I had about an eight foot. I was eight feet behind you to start she, with. She had but an that, eight foot head start. But that, that's I'm gonna <laughs> stick with. That's why she got to shore before me. But no, she she was a great swimmer, and I was. I, I it was easier for you to let go of stuff. I remember you started swimming away and I was holding on to like like packs and stuff and like trying to drag them to shore. Yeah. And you just basically like looked at me and you're like, What the heck are you doing? Like let go of that stuff. You gotta save yourself. And Yeah, I just remember I was kind of surprised with myself looking back at it because I'm a pretty slow moving, you know, sentimental human. <laughs> and I just remember even looking at Jake and Lathan and all our belongings and just saying, this is up to me now. <laughs> and I just left them all behind and started mechanism swimming. kicked in. Yeah, which is exactly what I needed to do. There was no way that working through a pack to get anything out was going to help. And, and you still had a I long way to swimming. go. Yeah, it was at, at least a quarter mile or yeah, it was half a quarter mile to third swim. mile swim, I think. You know, we went back and like looked at the map and kind of calculated stuff. Yeah. Can can you tell us about this the swim? I mean that you're I mean it's safe to say like you're swimming for your life. Yeah. At this point. Why don't you tell your version then I'll tell mine. Okay. Um I think for me the swimming came pretty naturally. Um one of my favorite things to do in the summers and falls when I was working up at Minogen was to swim like laps around the shores of the lake. <laughs> so I it's like super normal for me to just jump in a lake and start swimming as fast as I can. It's what I love to do. Um, and I had just come off a two-week whitewater training where I was swimming across rapids, um, practicing rescue scenarios. So it was like swimming was just like at the forefront of my muscle memory. So I think it was pretty easy to just start swimming as fast as I could. Um, it just kicked in. It just kicked in. And I honestly, it was pretty peaceful. And it was really freaking um, cold water, so moving as fast as you can seemed like a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely hard. Like, my muscles were really kind of clamping up and clamping shut. And I remember at one point, about halfway through the swim, I stopped swimming. <laughs> and I thought I was dying. I just said, I, I remember saying to myself, okay, you know, you've lived this many years. You've had an incredible life. And I felt completely peaceful about it. Mm -hmm. Um which is crazy. It was just this like insanely large acceptance of my mortality in that moment. Mm. Um, and I remember kind of looking around and being like, Jesus, Rachel, like keep swimming. <laughs> um, and I just, then I kept swimming till shore and didn't stop because I, I knew that my brain was starting to not act super properly. So I just had to keep telling myself, you know, just swim. And then I just had these really like, kind of simple thoughts about swimming. Mm -hmm. But for the first part of the swim, I'd say I was thinking about my life and wondering if it was the end. And the second half, I was just telling my body to keep moving. Willing forward. Yeah. While occasionally looking back at Jake and Lathan, which he'll tell you in a minute what was happening back there. And I remember just yelling back and trying to yell, swim, Jake. But my mouth was so cold that I couldn't get the words out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was just just kicking and flailing at the at the waves 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess mine was a little different. Um, after I hit the water, like I kind of mentioned earlier, for some reason I had a paddle in one hand and a pack in the other hand. I was like, I'm going to drag these to shore and save them. I don't want to lose these. And then Valuable right, items, yeah, right? Yeah, I do miss that paddle still. Um, but then Rachel snapped me out of that and told me to leave that stuff and just start kicking as hard as I could. So obviously, and obviously thinking about it, that's what needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not that easy because, again, it was that cold. So I'm wearing like rubber boots, wool socks, long underwear, rain pants, and then like three layers on top and a life jacket. So it's a lot of heavy yeah. stuff. You're, and you're already a big guy. I'm not, not small. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, a lot of stuff weighing you down when all that stuff's wet. Um, so then we're just kicking away. And then, again, I have that dog with my, with us. Uh, he's 10 years old. He grew up in Alaska. The only lakes and water he knows were frozen. He does not know how to swim. He fell in the water once like four years ago, and it was like straight down to the bottom and like slowly picked his head up. He looked scared as all could be. and. Mm. He hadn't come close to jumping in the water since. Um, Pretty rough on him as well. (laughs) Yes, it was pretty traumatizing for him. Um, So his kind of reaction was, why am I in water? Your head's above water. I'm going to crawl on top of you to prevent myself from being in the water. So he would keep on coming up to me and trying to climb on top of me, which would then push me under and... Obviously, in that situation, when you're swimming through white caps and that temperature water is not a not an ideal situation. Um, so as I was, you're both fighting fighting to stay alive at that point. Yeah, exactly. Like he didn't know what he was doing to me, and I I don't have any can't blame him for anything that he was doing there. Um, but yeah, it was detrimental to both of us. Um, but. I guess at one point after him kept on trying to pushing me under and I was like pushing him back so I could take a few strokes as fast as I could and then repeat basically, I decided that it was probably going to have to come down to either Lathan or I surviving that this Mm -hmm. wasn't going to be able to go. I was too far from shore. I wasn't making any progress um, dealing with him. Um, So I ended up just kept taking him. I hate saying this because I love the boy dearly. I I love the dog immensely. Um, Just taking him by his collar and pushing him down under the water, pulling him under the water as deep as I could, just so I could try to get away from him. And then I would yeah. just swim as fast as I could. And I would be looking back as I'm swimming because I love him and I don't want him to drown, but I also love myself and don't want to drown. Um, and every time he kept popping up and he would swim up to me and he would push me under again. And it was just like a super frustrating cycle because I didn't want to do him any damage. But I needed to get away, and I don't know. I, I probably threw him underwater as deep as I could, maybe a half dozen to ten times. And at this point, we also couldn't see Rachel anymore because she's way too fast of a swimmer. And I smoked him. Yeah, you were on shore well before me, but also far enough away where when you were still swimming, I couldn't see you. So I didn't know if you were still around either or if you had gone under. Um, it was not a fun sight to see looking back at Jake and Lathan essentially drowning each other in the water. I thought that was when in my mind I was like, okay, if they don't make it soon, you have to go, you have to go run and find help and leave them behind. Cause I did, I thought there was no way either of them were going to make it at this point. How did you make it back? 
Yeah, so maybe, what, like 50 yards from shore, um, I saw off to my right this rock that was literally no bigger than the chairs we're sitting on right now. And it was just probably a foot above the water to the point where like the waves were lapping over it, but it was still above water. Um, so I saw that and diverted from going to shore and went to that rock. And once I got there, I actually, I think I pulled Lathan out of the rock first. And then I tried to climb up, which was a huge struggle because nothing in your body wants to move when it's been that cold for so long. And at that point, I'd probably been in the water for 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was on the shore at this point. Yeah. I was just getting on the shore when you were doing that. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'd already been swimming for a while, and obviously your motor skills are not very finely tuned at that point. Um, but got Lathan up on the rock, and I took his pack off him, thinking that we still have 50 yards to get to shore. This is going to be the only chance he has. I couldn't believe he was still there, to be honest. And once I got up on the rock, I kind of started stripping off all of my, like, very heavy like slowing you down swimming layers like i took off my rubber boots i took off my big bulky rain pants um i guess i kept all my top layers on but got rid of those thinking i could kick a little bit faster yeah get me to shore um so then at that point rachel and i could see each other so we were kind of <laughs> it was kind of a comical conversation because we were both yelling but neither of us could hear what the other person was saying or speak through our frozen mouths <laughs> yeah um, so Rachel could just see me like standing on this rock and not making a decision and she was on shores kind of pacing like freezing and um, yeah I think I, in my mind I was thinking okay I can't wait forever if he doesn't start swimming fast I'm gonna I have to go start running yeah, and the last thing I want to do is jump back in the water but right. I mean it's a very contrary decision to have to make you know, you have to work against your own brain at yeah. that point, it sounds like. Yeah, it was it was a real yeah. real mind struggle. Working against your brain is such an accurate way of putting it, what that whole thing felt like. Yeah. Um, anyways, I guess then I just remember kind of like sliding off the rock back into the water mm. um, for the last swim. But And then I remember just getting like 10 yards away from the rock and it's being like wow like why is Lathan not jumping on me right now like this is this is really weird he should be pushing me underwater and I look back and there's Lathan just frozen on the rock just so scared of the water he doesn't want to go back in the same situation you were in exactly it's a, it's yeah. a dog and he's even more scared of water so and he he was not gonna leave it um so yeah I guess that I kept, I was basically like swimming backwards because I kept watching him and just yelling at him, just begging him to jump back in the water and come come back to shore with us. And oh, he just never did. He was too scared of the water, so he stayed on that rock. And I ended up making it back to get reunited with Rachel and looking back and seeing Lathan was still there. Um, but we knew that at that point we were very lucky to have survived the swim, but we still had like three quarters of a mile of just straight bushwhacking through the woods to get back to where our car was. Um, and yeah, we were cold. <laughs> yeah, at this point, I think we were both pretty, pretty lucky to be in the physical shape we were in to have made it. 
and we were still just in total um total survival mode if you want to put it that way so we gave each other a quick hug and we looked at Lathan and then we turned our backs and started bushwhacking along along the shore towards where we had left our car at the put-in point and um probably the moving continuing to move and continuing to bushwhack probably helped save your life as well oh totally sure you you (laughs) needed that body heat to to start moving start flowing yeah so we were crashing through you know across little mini bogs up and over like in an ice covered rocks oh yeah there's snow on the ground um and and jake you're in your socks and jake's in his socks yeah i was in my socks and underwear (laughs) yeah yeah my my pants were unfortunately at the bottom of nim lake with my uh rubber boots <laughs> yeah so it was a cold walk it was a painful walk because the ground was really really painful on the feet um but yeah we just kind of started yeah cruising yeah. through the woods talking to each other making sure that we kept the conversations going so we can kind of use that as a way to check in and see what each other's mental state was making sure neither of us were were starting to dip too low and I think there were times when we were walking when we both could see each other starting to make decisions that we wouldn't have normally made. But it seemed like whenever I was making a decision that was wrong, you were in a good state of mind to correct me and vice versa. Yeah, I definitely think we wouldn't have survived if we hadn't have been together. Because there were several moments where I was ready to essentially give up or wander off in a direction that wasn't that was super counterintuitive um Mm -hmm. and having someone there who you could talk through things with and reason with was really helpful for making it yeah Yeah, I, i agree immensely and then we made it back to the car um and by some stroke of luck jake had his car keys in his rain jacket pocket all zipped up wow or your some pocket all zipped up yeah so we were we had the canoe all packed up at the beginning and the last things were my cell phone wallet and car keys and i was like i don't want to just put these in the top pocket i want to bury them all in the bottom of my pack so i don't lose them they're just there for an emergency so we were like let's just hit the water now we'll do it on the first portage so then we got super lucky and had my yeah, car keys, phone, and wallet all in my pocket. Instead of at the bottom of the lake yeah, in a portage pack. Of, yep, somewhere far from us. So that, I mean, there's a series of things that saved your lives. Oh, yeah. For sure. And, and you've been describing them point by point, and, and this is a, a key point <laughs> that got you into the car. And, and and what happened then? Thanks for, oh. thanks for tolerating my fun. <laughs> we kind of, I think we were both just shocked that we were alive and still shocked that we fell in. Like we were both still like, what the heck? We were just paddling. How did we fall in? And we cranked the car and started taking our wet layers off mm-hmm. and just continuing to talk to each other. And then, you know, mm-hmm. our mission was very much not over. We still had to find shelter and a place to really get warm and really get with it and then we had to get back out there to get Lathan. Yeah, in the forefront of my mind was my dog. I just, I, I don't know. Still there on the rock. Yeah, he, I mean, he was terrified and there and I love him and I don't want to leave him. Yeah. Um, 
I think our next step was uh, we started driving and we were like, well, none of these like houses really have lights on, but maybe one of them has a boat and we can... <laughs> it was a un- ghost town. Unfortunately, steal a boat to go rescue the dog. And uh, we started driving the one road on the shore of the lake there and uh, ended up did finding a boat, but it had no gas. So we were bummed out. And we that. were soaking wet and there was no way. I mean, we, we were both talking through it that... It was the crucial point where we couldn't, we could easily make a decision in the state we were in that could have both not gotten Lathan and proceeded to kill one of us. So at that point, we needed to find warm clothes and warmth so that we could be in a position to go rescue Lathan. So then we started with our mind, I guess our joint decision was to head into Atacokan where we could have cell phone service and we were going to try to see if there was some sort of outfitter, boat rental, anything that was closed up for the winter, but would maybe rent us a boat just to go rescue the dog and try to find our stuff. Um, and as we were driving back into Atticoke and we saw this uh, gentleman walking his dog, um, a big happy golden retriever. Yeah, this just super friendly dog kind of bounded past us followed by um, a very kind, generous man who definitely saved saved the whole situation. <laughs> um, he, We told him what had happened and he hopped in the car and we drove to his place. He, Within about two minutes, we had dry clothes. We were sitting by a fire with big mugs of cocoa in our hands yeah. and wow. we were plotting a way to get gas in that. Um, little boat we had found and he just so happened to to be the neighbor of the boat that we had found yeah so this so this good samaritan brings you into his home gets you into warm clothes gets you warm fluids which Mm -hmm. are all these essential things you need to get your your bodies warmed and your brains back into healthy decision making and you hatch a plan yeah definitely and I guess also, like, we didn't even start this trip until, like, one or two in the afternoon. So by this point, it was pretty close to sunset. We were fighting daylight, yeah. Yeah, so we knew that if we were going to go get the dog, we needed to move right away. And this gentleman also had, like, a tank of gas. He was like, take this gas, bring it over to the boat, and just steal the boat. They're my neighbors. We'll let them know what's going on. They'll be fine with it. Um, So we had all of our layers on, and we went out, and... Dry clothes at this point. <laughs> dry clothes. Wet life jackets, but dry clothes. Right on, right on. Good job putting the life jackets back on. <laughs> yes. We weren't going to make that mistake. Yeah. Um, and we were just nervous that Lathan wasn't going to be there. Yeah. Or we had no yeah. idea. It had been, I don't know, an hour and a half. Two and a two, half, I think. Two and a half hours since yeah. we had left, since I had left Lathan on that rock. Um, so we were just kind of hoping he was still there and still alive because he was soaking wet and very cold temperatures and the wind on this rock. Um, so we we pushed off and put, putted across the lake. The engine was definitely cold. working. <laughs> um, and it was probably a two-mile boat ride. Yeah, it was a good that was Or a good so. It was distance. from the other side of the lake. Yeah. Um, and it probably took us about 10 minutes to get out there. Yeah. Um, and so we're approaching, and we see we see the area where we swamped. We can see the little island. And we're looking and we're looking and we know exactly where Lathan should be. Mm-hmm. Can't quite see it yet. And then the rock comes into view and there is a big gray 
mound of dog on the rock <laughs> wagging not wagging his tail shaking yeah. <laughs> um and he was alive he had stayed on the rock for about three hours with waves crashing against him yeah that was a pretty happy moment for me <laughs> that was a pretty emotional moment i was beyond thrilled to see that he was still there and that i took his his backpack off of him with all of his food and left it on the rock with him and i thought it was perfectly fitting that while he was on that rock for a couple hours by himself he had chewed a hole through his backpack to start eating some of his rations wow i thought was very funny well that probably probably helped him stay alive (laughs) just like you guys had to make certain decisions to keep moving maybe that was part of his yeah yeah Yeah, it was just the sight of because as we approached him we could see him and it looked he just looked like jesus dogs you couldn't even see the rock it was so small it looked like this dog (laughs) just standing on this lake filled with white caps wow it was probably the strangest sight i've ever seen in my life (laughs) yeah but yeah, he jumped right in the boat, and then once we got there, and he was super happy, and he stayed up in the bow next to you, and yeah. just shook like crazy. And... He nuzzled right into me, and I fed him cheese sticks. Yeah. <laughs> and Lincoln's he was favorite food is string cheese. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely tired, and he he seemed pretty scared, um, but he just totally seemed like himself right away. Yeah, um, to me. Yeah, and we got him back, and put him right in the car because his favorite thing was car rides and he just curled up in the back seat and he was just he was exhausted <laughs> he was tuckered out but wow but he was with us yeah you know that there there are so many ways this story could have gone and it is you know so uh, it's such an an incredible ending and, and I'm so grateful that you two are sitting here telling the story versus somebody having to tell it for you. Oh, yeah. Um, the fact that you survived this and that could have easily gone a different way. And the fact that, you know, Lathan's out in the car right now, um, <laughs> just, you know, doing his thing. I mean, that's, um, you could call it a miracle, but I think there are reasons that you did survive and there are decisions that you made that kept you alive and kept Lathan alive. Um, if you had died, he would have died. Um, and I think this this idea of um, the decisions you make and the the preparation that you do in order to make good decisions is so important. Um, and I'm wondering if you, you know, we have just a few minutes left, if you could speak to what sort of credit you give that process for yourselves. You know, is it training? I know you guys have wilderness medicine training. Is it is some element of your relationship? But what do you, what do you attribute this to? I think for me, being a lake swimmer is just the big, like, technical skill that comes to mind and when I look back at it um just spending so many years swimming and then I think having the experience of being um a wilderness leader um instructor guide and just having I've had a few moments where it's a pretty you have to make a fast decision um and so I think that experience and training was really helpful um 
when I look back at this incident, I also think of the ways we could have been more prepared for the cold. Um, like having more of a kind of survival kit with ways to make a fire right in your life jacket and right on your person. Um, um, having maybe a dry suit if you're going to be paddling in water that cold. That's come to mind too. Um, yeah, I think, but I think the training was the biggest thing for me and the trust we had in each other. Um, I think during the whole, you know, from the moment we decided to turn around, I, that stands out to me as a pretty key moment where if we had, you know, if I had been stubborn and told Jake, <laughs> you know, I don't care that you want to turn around, I want to keep going, um, we probably would have swamped just further away from shore. So I think that's the hardest part is knowing when it's right to turn around. It's not something that anybody likes to do. Yeah. So I think the, yeah, I guess the working as a team to come up with decisions was really key in that, in the way that turned out. Um, and then both of our experience in addition to the luck. Yeah, I don't know. I guess in my mind, whenever I think of it, it's being in the water for 25 minutes, having to walk three quarters of a mile through the winter woods to get back to the car. Uh, we shouldn't be around but we are. Um, I don't know. I think I always credit a lot of that stuff to just being calm, being clear thinkers. I think we're both pretty decent at that, pretty good at that. Um, there are a lot of times we could have just made a quick rash decision and just rushed into something without actually thinking it through, and we could have gotten ourselves into more trouble, I think, with that. But with a good, I don't know, communication process and a good, good, good decision-making process, we were able to be all right through it. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to say selfishly, <laughs> since you two are my dear friends, uh, I am so grateful that you had those experiences leading up and that you had the clarity to survive this. And I think so often... Um, close calls happen in the wilderness and you don't hear about them or you hear about them, you know, as a you know, report from the forest service. And, um, you guys did, you guys did it right. You did it right. And you're here to tell the story. And I, I think there's a few things that stick out to me. Uh, and one of the most important things is you wore your life jackets mm -hmm. and that's a simple thing, but there are still people who don't, mm -hmm. um, and so that is a simple one. Um, and, but you kept each other moving. And I hear that throughout your story, you know, what, from, the, from the time you turned around to you ended up in the water, um, you kept each other in your awareness. And um, the, I think one of you said this, you know, if, if you were out there alone, this would be a, probably a different story to tell. And, and so I, you know, you did, you made it. And I'm curious, <laughs> this sort of in reflection, th does this change your um, desire to go into the <laughs> the wilderness uh, at all or, or how you approach that? Maybe we could just kind of end around that. It's a bit of a complicated answer for me. I think having already made the decision at this point in my life to make 
wilderness travel my career path. Um, I feel lucky that I know my job will take me back into the wilderness, and I've already been back into the wilderness since this trip, not paddling um, because the lakes are frozen up here. Um, I think what I am still working through is getting to a point where I can kind of trust my judgments again. I think that it's, I think it will be easy to get psyched out of risky situations again. And I feel like kind of just this intense amount of wonder for everything that happened that day and how everything went and a lot of gratitude for all the people and environmental factors that helped us survive. And that the thought process, the way I make decisions and manage risk will probably be forever changed because of this. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that I just have a more scarred and more nuanced approach to risk management that I'll take with me to, for the trips that I have yet to go on. Um, so it definitely does not stop me from wanting to be out there. I think if anything, I feel the need to definitely paddle out in the boundary waters um, once the ice is out. Um, and not because I feel the need to prove anything, but because my like spirit is so connected to paddling and swimming on the lakes and water up here. And I have, I feel a need to kind of continue working on my relationship with that. Um, because right now it was a little shaken up in October. Just a little. <laughs> yeah. And swimming. I've been swimming a lot in the pool just to try and continue not being afraid of water and swimming because it's yeah. one of my biggest joys. Yeah. I guess for me, um, I just want to get back out there and do another trip. Um, that trip obviously got cut way too short, so mm-hmm. I want to go uh, I want to go paddle again. Um, I don't know. We were a little different after that trip. We had those two weeks set aside for it. And after like three or four days after we got back, I wanted to go canoeing. <laughs> um, I wanted to hop back on the water and just more for myself than for selfishly for myself more than anything, just because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. Yeah. Like I've been doing it my whole life. Like what happened at this point or what, what went wrong there? I just wanted to, wanted to be back and confident with what I was, what I was doing. To feel that sensation. Yeah. On the water. Yeah. And I knew that if I didn't, the more I, the longer I, I kind of like stewed with it. Um, I was scared that the least, like, I was scared if I stewed all winter without paddling, I wouldn't want to paddle in the spring. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm very ready to get back out. I know mm-hmm. that if next, next October rolls around that, I hope to do a week or two week canoe trip then. Um, yeah. I just love it. That's my favorite time of year to be out there. I'm ready to get back out. I would like to make an official uh, reservation with you, Jake, <laughs> to be in the boat with you or at least on the water <laughs> with you come springtime Deal. and be a part of that um, reclaiming of your your paddle uh, experience. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Awesome. That'd be lovely. Um, I want to say a big thank you to both you guys for sharing what is a very intense story. Um, I know it's there's painful moments. I, I was tearing up, uh, you know, and I've heard the story already. Um, and uh, 
I just really appreciate it. And I think the best thing that can happen from this is um, a learning and not just for you, but for everybody who hears the story. And, um, and yeah, we're just full of gratitude. So thank you so much for both, both of you telling the story today. Oh, thank you for having us, Matthew. It's always a joy to be hanging out and having a conversation with you. So let's, uh, let's do this again uh, once you guys are back in the water and we can hear, hear how the, the coming into it goes in the spring. We'll, we'll share a canoe with you this spring. Thank you. All right, Matthew. Um, definitely one of the most powerful stories that we've heard here on the podcast and uh, had me grip from the get-go. I mean, I really want to say thank you to uh, Jake and Rachel for stopping by and being open to, to sharing that story. I will uh, proudly admit that I did tear up uh, as they were sharing that um, tale and felt like I was right there along with them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's such an epic, and I think anybody who's been out there knows, you know, the inherent risks involved and, and those sorts of possible worst case scenarios run through people's minds and in this case it just became reality uh and i think that's why it's so important to name that um, one of the most essential things you can take with you into the backcountry is knowledge and experience and that's what we're going to hear about exactly so uh up next we're going to hear our conversation with greg gaskin uh he's a proud atlantic canadian transplanted new englander uh, he's also an instructor with the wilderness medicine institute and National Outdoor Leadership School, commonly known as Knowles, to uh, a lot of people who uh, have used their services or just know a little bit about what they do. So um, let's hear from Greg. Uh, you know, we really wanted to bring him in and hear a little bit more about safety while you're out there in the Boundary Waters and before you start your trip even. So uh, let's jump right to our conversation with Greg. And joining us now... On the phone is Greg Gaskin, known to many as the Bearded Canadian. Greg's talking to us from uh, near Sutton, Massachusetts today on the podcast. Greg, hey, thanks so much for your time. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about some pretty serious stuff here today, definitely. I mean, we just heard uh, Rachel and Jake's story about what happened to them uh, up here near the Boundary Waters. But Greg, before I, you know, we get into that side of um, our discussion, I... I gotta ask you, man. The the bearded Canadian. This is this is like the greatest nickname, maybe ever, <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> um, what what's uh, what's up with the bearded Canadian? Where did that uh, enter your life, and and uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, well, you know, I would like to take credit for it. I'm not sure if it was my my own decision. Um, I have a beard, and I'm Canadian, <laughs> and uh, it sort of narrowed it down for me. Yeah. Uh, and I just reversed that, and it came out with that name. But uh, yeah, in all seriousness, I, I had someone. I, I do a lot of work both sides of the border, Canada and U.S. for for guiding, and someone just referred to me offhandedly as you know that bearded Canadian guy. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so, and it sort of stuck. <laughs> the envy of many bearded Canadians, like you've coined it. It's yours now. Um, so, it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Okay. Cool. <laughs> well, uh, so Greg, let's hear a little bit. Uh, you know, before we get into talking about Rachel and Jake's experience and, and some safety reminders too, you've been to the Boundary Waters. You got any experience in Quetico or uh, BWCA? Uh, yeah, I've been in Quetico. Gosh, it would have been fifteen or twenty years ago. 
mm-hmm. um, spent uh, a lot of time paddling in, in Ontario and Algonquin, Tomogamy, those areas. Um, so same sort of geographic features, same sort of water temps, same sort of big water. When you're listening to uh, Rachel and Jake's story, you can you, know, you can visualize uh, what's happening as they're you know unfolding the the events that took place that that day. And so I wanted to open then, Greg, too, with a quote that I, I found online that uh, that you gave about you know just uh, wilderness safety and things you need to keep in mind. And it says, I quote, the most important wilderness skill is knowing yourself and your own limitations knowing when to stop reacting to a situation and start acting. The very best piece of survival equipment you have stored is between your ears, unquote. So, Greg, I think that's uh, pretty pertinent to the story that we heard from Rachel and Jake and just in general uh, for for reminders for safety, and, and we're talking about paddling, of course. But wh- where did, you know, you get this idea coming from that you need to uh, – when something happens, knowing when to stop reacting to a situation and start acting. Can you break that down a little bit for us? Yeah, so I, I think uh, in, in my personal context, I think it's just uh, I've got a lot of training in, in wilderness medicine and um, talk about scene safety and, and, and that just as a forefront. You know, the safety is something one can assume. Um, and at some point, you have to realize that we can only make it so safe by watching, and sometimes we have to act to make the scene safe. Um, so that's sort of where that background comes from. And in terms of their story, I, I, I listened to it and uh, from an outside perspective, you know, it's hard to put yourself in those shoes, but I've been in similar situations, maybe not quite as dire or the consequences um, quite as bad if, if things went totally wrong. But uh, uh, my first notice that they went, when they reacted was turning around. That was a huge um, acting instead of reacting, you know, sort of reacting with the waves, the weather. They, they acted, made that decision to turn around. It was such a really important crux of that whole scenario i think uh, and it was just by making that one decision what else about uh this idea you know maybe even that knowing your own limitations uh that can mean that can mean what anything from you go paddling all the time someone who goes out very often the limitation is still what's going to happen to me if my if i fall out of my canoe in the middle of the lake uh how how comfortable am i at swimming what's the water temperature that no matter how comfortable and experienced you are everybody still has their own limitations. Does that sound about right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, sometimes we don't know what those limitations are um, if we've never been in a situation. So if you're a newer paddler or newer climber or whatever sport it is you're, you're sort of doing, you don't know those risks. Um, and sometimes when we, we're really experienced at it, we, we sort of take for granted those risks. We've managed them for so long that we just sort of get complacent in the idea of, of managing those. So just keeping those on the forefront of your mind when you're doing these things is pretty important. Yeah, and so Greg, you teach wilderness medicine throughout North America, Canada, United States, and um, I'm curious to know what you why you think it's important not just for somebody who's trying to be a you know qualified guide or, or get some credentials because it's mandated or, or somebody's telling them that they need to for whatever reason for licensure, insurance, whatever the case may be. But what about just the common paddler? Uh, somebody that was just headed out is wilderness medicine have a more of an appeal than just somebody like it you would think of as a guide or something. I mean, just for the average paddler. Yeah, you know, and, and that, that's a good point and a, and a and a great question because I think I, I hear that a lot. Like, is this going to be useful for me? And you know, I teach courses that are range from two days to thirty days and semester courses, and uh, uh, it's pretty common for folks to take a two day course just feel like wow, you know, that feedback is I didn't know that 
how useful this is going to be. And a lot of it is just learning how to manage those stressful situations. That's what we try to teach in there. We can't teach anyone how to be a doctor in two days, but we can throw some stress in there. So uh, they get in a real-world stress, stressful situation. They can sort of fall back on that training a little bit. It gives them a base just to stay calm and, and okay, take that deep breath and think, okay, what, what do I do next? Thinking that critical thinking. is, it, And that's sort of the foundation, I think, of any anything that I teach is that critical thinking, staying calm and being able to make those that sound judgment and, and making those tough decisions when we need to. Yeah, and so that's maybe why, you know, going back to what we were just hitting on before that, is that it's important that at least somebody in your group or maybe, you know, preferably all members of your group are experienced and have some level of comfort with wilderness backcountry medicine so that you're not just reliant on, oh, somebody from search and rescue is going to be here to help us in an, in a while, that it can be applied hands-on from right within your own group while maybe search and rescue then is on their way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that we, we seem to forget about when we talk about this wilderness medicine is that I I hear people that come to my courses all the time saying, I'm here because I want to be more prepared in the backcountry. And I, I go with friends and I want to be more prepared. Um, and I encourage them always jokingly, almost like, hey, well, what happens if, if you get hurt? You know, what about your friends? Like, what are they going to do? So not trying to drum up more business or more folks take my courses, but I just think it's a realistic question. Like, one person is great, two people's better. As you teach wilderness medicine, I mean, that's a, a big part of your, your livelihood. But what about you as a recreationalist in, in either in paddling or, or just, uh, you know, out hiking, anything? Have you ever actually had to use these skills that you teach yourself or had them somebody do that to you while you were in the backcountry yeah absolutely i mean i've done it you know i've been a guide for for a long time and uh, professionally i've done it countless times more times than i've ever thought i would need to but in a just in a recreational or personal um situation you know i i recreate in the northeast a lot when i'm not in the field or not teaching courses and you know densely densely populated so there's ample opportunity to practice it um just that calming, you know, I put on those blue gloves and I walk into a scene and I can not command the scene, but it, you can see their outcome shift in their eyes, like from how, what's going to happen here to like, okay, well, something good might happen, even though this is a bad situation. And uh, I was on a, on a personal trip in the, uh, in the Pemming wilderness in, in New Hampshire. And uh, I, I came across a, a group of folks and it was uh, late October. So sort of that seasonal could be snow, could be rain, could be, minus 10 could be plus 30, you know, who knows what the temperature is going to be. And um, this group was obviously prepared for summer hiking, not for fall winter hiking and uh, just managing hypothermia on a couple of the, the folks that we came across. And, um, you know, it's one of that classic situation where they, people just start to get really apathetic and not knowing that they're making those bad decisions. Uh, so just going in and talking to folks, they said one of our friends is not real, seems to be a little, um, absent-minded so i went in and talked to the group i was walking by the campsite and uh, had a conversation with them and uh, you know just the most basic thing that you know like zipping up a jacket this this person wouldn't you didn't even register to do that and so you know actively taking that role and being proactive for for that that person and getting them hot drinks getting them in a sleeping bag but you know it, it ended well we had got folks warmed up and uh, um, that was the most recent thing that i think i've sort of dealt with and then just in closing, uh, Greg, you know, going back to Rachel and Jake's story, I mean, it's just it's such a harrowing tale, and, and we're, of course, so thankful that they are okay, that every, you know, the dog and Rachel and Jake, everybody's everybody's okay. But, um, you know, what was what was your thought as, as you're hearing this and, and just, you know, anything that where you would have said, oh, my goodness, you know, 
this this went right or 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 that was you know maybe they they could have done this or something like that. Uh, but just your general takeaway from from their story today. You know, I wasn't there. You weren't there. Um, it's not easy. Be, and well, some people find it easy to be in that armchair quarterback, and and I don't. I I never judge anyone. I think they make appropriate decisions for for where it was. I think the key things that I took away, like, and I think we talked about this beforehand, was having those PFDs on was huge. Uh, and then when when they made that call to turn around um, at the appropriate time, knowing like, hey, like we're experienced paddlers, and and being able to make that call uh, and turning around so that they were closer to to the to getting out um, was huge. And, I, and you know, I think I was listening to it, and you know, I I'm a dog person, so it pulled tugged at my heartstrings as well. So I think um, being able to to facilitate that and get back and get the dog was huge. And you know, just sort of the timing of seeing someone. I mean, all these things come into play and if they hadn't made that call when they did to turn around like they had mentioned they may have capsized just further away i think just you know we've all been in those situations where like should i go or should i stay like it, and if, if you're thinking that then it's probably appropriate to to stop and make make that decision to turn around and uh, we can always go back the lake's not going anywhere the mountain's not going anywhere um so we there's always gonna be another day to try it yeah yeah well said and and appreciate you taking this time, uh, Greg, I think you and I could, could talk for, you know, a lot longer if, uh, <laughs> if we had the space here on the episode, maybe we'll be able to connect again, or, or if you're ever, uh, you know, headed toward Quetico, it'd be great to, uh, touch base with you again and, and find out how your trip goes. And, uh, I've been talking with Greg Gaskin. He's Canadian. He has a beard. Um, he's known by many as the bearded Canadian, just for that very reason. Uh, also very well-spoken when it comes to wilderness medicine. He's an instructor, teaches that throughout North America. Greg, hey, thanks so much for talking with us on the podcast, man. Hey, Joe, it was my pleasure. You take care. Appreciate it. It is so great to hear from Greg and his experience and his insight into Rachel and Jake's story. I want to say a huge thanks to Greg Gaskin for being on the show, to both Rachel and Jake for taking the time to share their story. Um, interestingly enough, uh, that was the second time they've shared that story in its entirety, and uh, they both shared with me that it was a really powerful experience to, to tell the tale. I imagine so. Certainly uh, powerful for me as, as a listener uh, to their story, and, and hopefully for you as well as you're listening to this podcast. You know, we also want to thank you, our listeners. Um, we're grateful that you continue to join us on each episode, uh, and we continue to want to hear from you. Thanks to everybody who sent us emails and inquiries and told us what they like about the podcast. It really keeps us going and keeps us motivated to get those emails. Um, but what's even better is that we have the opportunity to meet many of you face-to-face. It's coming up. Uh, as we heard at the top of today's episode, we're sponsored today by Canoe Copia, uh, Rutabaga Paddle Sports in Madison, Wisconsin. And we are headed to Canoe Copia, the podcast, going on the road, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, March 8th, 9th, 10th, we're going to be in Madison, uh, the Canoe Copia event. It's a huge canoe uh, paddling event taking place in, in Madison, an annual event that a lot of people who go to the Boundary Waters, know what Canoe Copia is. Matthew and I are going to be there. It's an amazing lineup of speakers, 
amazing uh, bunch of vendors. I mean, this is, it's sort of I, uh, like being in a small city going to this uh, <laughs> event. I mean, and there will be, we are so pumped to actually be able to um, have our booth and have our, uh, our microphone out there with us, hearing your stories, meeting you in person, and talking about the thing that we all love. Absolutely. So if you are going to be at Canucopia, please uh, stop in. Matthew and I will be there. We'll have a booth in the nonprofit area. We'll be also roaming around the event. Uh, we'll have uh, some... You'll know who we are. If you don't find yeah. us, we will find you. <laughs> so we're looking forward to that, and uh, thank you to uh, Rutabaga Paddle Sports and to Canucopia for making today's episode possible. Great things coming in March. Until then, Matthew Baxley, I'll see you at Canucopia. See ya, Joe. <laughs> I just sing when I paddle canoe Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true We're gonna get through to the other side out in the night, the waves beat the shore. You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar. Oh, roll me, rock me in my dreams. You can roll me, rock me in my dreams. So I like to sing, I love to dance, I play the fool if I can.